Good evening, dummies. Episode 185, Friday, July 9th at 8.50 p.m. It's Red Friday. Closest thing I had to a shirt, laundry day, sorry, was the Dadpool shirt. And uh, kids got it for me for Father's Day. So thanks to them for that. Remember, everyone deployed veterans all over the world. Sailors, Marines, soldiers, airmen, Coast Guardsmen. National Guard reservists are serving overseas. Sometimes it's not overseas. Sometimes it's out of state. Maybe it's Alaska or Hawaii, and that might as well be the same thing. They're detached from their homeland, and that is honorable and something that deserves our respect. So we wear a red on Friday, and I figured I would remind you about it today. I hope everyone's going to have a great weekend. I'm going to. We're taking my daughter's friend back to Texas. She flies back tomorrow. It's been wonderful having her, and we just miss our friends in Houston, so it was nice to have them back. Tonight on Don't Unfriend Me, the Don't Unfriend Me show, the media giveth, the media taketh away. The fourth estate. What is the fourth estate? What the hell is it supposed to do? It's supposed to keep our other three branches of government, even though the fourth estate isn't an official branch, supposed to keep them honest. It's supposed to check the checks and balance the balancers and make sure that they do what they're supposed to do, which is to protect the U.S. citizens from the government, from any tyrannical rule, to enforce the laws, to interpret the laws, and to write the laws. That's their job, and that's really all they're supposed to do. This other grab-ass stuff that they do isn't. And the media is also supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to be professional. And it used to be an institute that was respected respected across the world, and now they are just a slight cut above politicians. Not very high. We'll talk about that tonight. The party who cried wolf. What about all these comments? Russian collusion and prostitutes in Russia peeing on Donald Trump, taxes and college scams and women coming out of the woodwork about supposed allegations and then disappearing, the Ukraine scandal, impeachment, all of these things that have been brought up and now taxes in New York. Is it going to help the presidency? Is it going to protect the Oval Office, and at least the institution and not the man? Are we setting a precedence that this will happen to Joe Biden when he leaves office? And no matter what you think about Joe Biden, he's not evil. He just doesn't do anything. 46 years he's been in office and he's done really nothing. But he's not evil. He's just useless as tits on a bore. But is he going to be vulnerable for lawsuits? Absolutely, because we're setting that precedent. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? We'll find out tonight. And lastly, if you're only as good as your word then what does that make you? Your word is important. I was brought up with morals, scruples, honor, integrity, military help with that. I had a listener post last night and it said, thank you for your service. I was too much of a coward to do it and I'm ashamed of myself. I want to correct that. You're not a coward. You shouldn't be ashamed. Everybody serves in different ways. The world needs ditch diggers. The world needs doctors. They also need military and people who can take a bullet. It doesn't make you a coward. The fact that you're self-aware enough to know it's something you wanted to do but didn't do doesn't mean you can't serve today. There are plenty of companies out there, 501Cs, the Travis Mannion Foundation, Operation Second Chance, the Green Beret Foundation, Rolling Thunder. There are so many different organizations and veteran companies out there like Flags of Valor and Grunt Style and Black Rifle Coffee and 511 Tactical. These are companies, Nine Line Apparel, who you can support, who give back to veterans. That's service in itself. It's something to be commended. Here's the thing. 
military people know military people, even if they didn't serve. And what I mean by that is that there is a particular cut from a certain cloth that somebody has the ability to serve, even those who didn't. Police officers are a great example. Firefighters, EMS, nurses, doctors. These are people who dedicate themselves. So please, don't be ashamed of that. Don't ever apologize for not serving. Unless corny joke. We're all about corny jokes here. My teacher asked me when I was younger to make a sentence using the words defense, defeat, and detail. And I simply replied, when a horse jumps over defense, defeat, go first, then detail. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Well, folks, thank you for stopping by episode 185 of Don't Unfriend Me. My name is Matthew Spear. I am your host. I want to be honest with you. I am a conservative fiscally. And I believe in small government. I believe in the Constitution. Uh, I believe in the small of the woman's back, the curveball. I believe that AstroTurf and the designated hitter should be banned from baseball. No, we're not going to do the Bull Durham speech. I believe really socially I'm more liberal or moderate than anything. I am not a progressive. I'm not a socialist. I don't believe in any other form of government versus a democracy, more than a republic than a democracy. And also capitalism, I think, is the greatest economic system on the planet. Although it does have its downfalls, it's the strongest and the best, and most of the world would agree with you. The point is, is that I try to take a honest approach to things. Sometimes I go against the party that I vote for. Sometimes I vote for the other party. Sometimes I say things that you may agree with or disagree with, or you may love me or hate me. All I ask is that you don't unfriend me and continue to watch. If that sounds good to you and those are all things that you can deal with, you can find me on don'tunfriendme.com. Also, here are all my tags, don't unfriend me host and don't unfriend me on Instagram and YouTube. Also, I'm on Anchor and Facebook. Please give me a like, share, follow, and subscribe right here on this little red envelope on YouTube. Also, like and follow on Facebook. And once again, I said my website, don'tunfriendly.com. If you're not a big social media person, that's fine. You can find my podcast, my videos, everything right here streaming for your viewing pleasure. Well, let's get into it now that we've contracted to like and follow each other, and then you will officially be what is known as a dummy. A dummy is a don't unfriend me. It's an acronym, and all of my listeners are dummies. It's an esteemed title. It's not an insult. However, if you are looked at like Dusty Dinkleman, a dum-dum, that is not a good thing. Try not to be a dum-dum. Try not to be a partisan hack. Try not to be someone who never goes to the other side. I'm not saying I do it all the time, but I do it more often than zero, like most dum-dums. Have an opinion that's your own. It's an amazing thing. The media giveth, the media taketh awayeth. I, that's not what it was. It's the media giveth, the media taketh away. Jeez, old English. President Joe Biden's election might have made the media feel really good about itself, but it's done very little for the industry's reputation with new consumers. Since the election, and in the latest demonstration of the difficulties the news media face, a sizable 58% of likely voters told Rasmussen that they believe the media are truly the enemy of the people. And that's a phrase coined by former President Donald Trump. But this was around long before Donald Trump. And the point is, it's 58%. 58% of the country is not 
in Donald Trump's quarter. Why is it that people don't trust the media, even from the left, it seems? Some 46% disagreed, but the highest number, 34%, said that they strongly agree with Trump. That's most of his base. As with similar surveys during the Trump era, Democrats believe the media far more than Republicans now. 56% of Democrats trust the news they receive versus 58% of Republicans who don't. And this partisanship isn't surprising, considering that 92% of the media, mass media, even on the digital landscape, is owned by, obviously, people who support the left. That's where their donations go. That's who they vote for. That's who they give the most positive spotlight to. It just makes sense. But there was some agreement on fake news, another Trump phrase being a serious problem. A supermajority of Republicans, 92%, said it is a problem, and 74% of Democrats Overall, 83% said it's a big problem. Notably, said Rasmussen independents, generally agree with Republicans on the enemy of the people. Question at the 61% moniker. Said the pollster, voters overwhelmingly believe fake news is a problem, and a majority agree with former President Donald Trump that the media have become the enemy of the people. Here's the thing. What did the founders think about the media? It's important. Were they lockstep with the fourth estate? Where did that term come from? What does it mean? What were the expectations of the media then and now? Are they the same? Are they different? Are they off the rails or on the rails? This is all important things to ask when we look at the current media. The American founders regarded a free press as so vital to the new nation that they took care to include that right in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Freedom of the press doesn't mean you get to go and buy a newspaper. Freedom of the press means that they have the rights that every citizen has. The founder spoke glowingly about the press as a pillar of democracy and guarantor of liberty. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, famously wrote in 1787 that were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. George Washington framed the issue of free expression in almost apocalyptic terms. If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. Yet discussing the free press of their day, the founders also could often sound like those who are decreeing fake news in 2020. Under a barrage of criticism from newspapers published by his political opponents, Washington painted journalists as infamous scribblers. Benjamin Franklin himself, a very successful newspaper publisher, described the press of his time as a resentful, vicious institution comparable to the Spanish Inquisition. Those are some fighting words. Jefferson frequently condemned the press as passionately as he had advanced their right to publish freely. I deplore the putrid state into which our newspapers have passed and the malignity, the vulgarity, and the mendaciousness spirit of those who write for them. Wow, some big words. He wrote that in 1814. Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper, he complained in a letter to another friend. For good measure, he wrote his ally in Congress, the Massachusetts politician Barnabas Bidwell. As for what, nobody has great names like that anymore. As for what is not true, you will always find abundance in the newspapers. So, as we just passed the independence, 244 years later, on this day of independence on July 4th, It was worth reflecting on the lessons the founders have for us as we assess the role and practices of the news media today. 
The first lesson is that while the nation's leaders and institutions may chafe under the public criticism that accompanies reporting of their shortcomings, the role of the press in holding those leaders and institutions accountable is indispensable to the workings of a democratic society. Most importantly, the press proper role must be recognized by the leaders and institutions being held accountable. As abused as he was by the partisan press, Jefferson nevertheless declared, I am for freedom of the press and against all violations of the Constitution to silence by force and not by reason the complaints or criticisms, just or unjust, of our citizens against the conduct of their agents. Among those slinging partisan unjust criticisms was the newspaper co-founded by James Madison, who reasoned that, some degree of abuse is inseparable from the proper use of everything, and in no instance is the more true than in that of the press. I love the way they talked back then. Yet, he went on to arguing that trying to regulate the abuse of the press threatens to strangle its vitality and utility to a free people. To the press alone, checkered as it is with abuses, the world is indebted for all the triumphs which have been gained by reason and humanity over error and oppression. And therein lies the most fundamental lesson the founders have for us in 2021. The press and the government may often have an adversarial relationship, but the government must not attempt to delegitimize the press and its works because they are essential to a free society. Would any of us want to live in a country where the news media isn't freely allowed to report on the actions of its government, whether it's true or untrue or spun or unspun? Ask yourself that question. Any harm done by an overreaching press would be nothing compared to a government left unchecked. As much as the news media may rub some of the wrong way, it is frightening to think of a society with no free press. Tarred and slandered by the press of his own time, often by newspapers owned or financed by fellow founders, Thomas Jefferson stayed true to that principle to the day he died on the 4th of July, 1826. On the previous July 4th that just took place, all Americans should renew the commitment to Jefferson's description of the United States as a country which is afraid to read nothing and which may be trusted with anything so long as its reason remains unfettered by law. Wrapping this up, it's important to understand that it's not, not saying that we should not check the media, unfettered access to whatever they want to write. That's exactly the opposite. The point is, is that there are counterpoints being made. There is and will always be good news out there. I'm asked all the time by people, Matt, I don't hear what you say all the time in the mass media. I don't read what you say. Where do you find this? Well, it's an amalgamation of many different sites. It's not just one. I check many things. I check the Associated Press more than anything. I check the Newswire. I have press credentials, and I actually get my wired, uh, my wired news unfettered, unmolested. I get it raw. It allows me to go ahead and get a jump on things. I read foreign newspapers. I read the London Times. I read Al Jazeera. I read global news. I read about the economy, social issues, geopolitical issues. I look at certain briefs that are not necessarily... uh, are classified, but unclassed material. I read a lot of books. I study. I constantly immerse myself to be as current as I can. And it doesn't make me the smartest or the best, but I also do one thing. I'm not afraid to express my opinion. I'm not afraid to stir it up. I'm not afraid to have a conversation that's factual and based on reason, not a 
game of grab ass of screaming and yelling. Yes, I can do that too with the best of them. I can go off and yell and lose my temperament. And I've never said I'm the greatest debater in the world or that I will remain calm. But I do believe in having the facts on our side. And we as a people in today's world where journalists are literally somebody with an internet connection and a laptop, that's, that's kind of scary. There's no requirement to post a blog. There's no requirement to have a show like this. I don't have any requirement whatsoever. If I was talking to 100 million people, do you think that I might influence them with what I say and what I do, but have no qualifications to say what I say or do what I do? Yeah. But that's the great thing about free media is you get to decide. You get to use your own brain. You get to not just listen to the talking points, not just listen to the pundits, but challenge them. Challenge your own thinking. Being uncomfortable is an amazing thing. Whether you're a liberal or conservative, male or female, young or old, Americans love to bash the news. It's what we do. It's been happening. We just heard Thomas Jefferson do it and Benjamin Franklin. It was once the most trusted institution. The news media have fallen from grace. This Gallup poll that just came out in 2021, just recently today, a majority of Americans trusted the press. But by 2015, it had fallen to 40%. And now it's at 36%. Among those 18 to 49 years old, it's hard to see how this decline will be reversed. This new generation doesn't trust the media. The industry has become politically polarized, and in the highly competitive age of multiple 24-hour cable news channels and the internet, it's under severe financial pressure. And this compounds an even deeper problem here. Just like money in politics, money in the media has completely distorted the truth. This fails journalistic standards. In the 1950s, the media universe consisted mainly of a few national television broadcast networks and local TV and radio stations that were on the hours from like 5 to 7, and then there would be the nightly news, and that was it. It wasn't on all day. Most of which of this news cycle that has taken place from major wire service and the nation's largest newspapers is just in most recent memory. Most journalists were committed to producing objective journalism back then, fact-based stories, independent of the government, and for political parties. They used to say something called eyewitness news. You don't get that anymore. There are no eyewitnesses. It's just a, an unverified government, senior government official that now is the eyewitnesses to things that we don't know are true or not. A reporter's job, first and foremost, was to report, not offer opinion or advocate. Presented with the facts, it was up to readers to make their own judgments about news and events. Opinions were supposed to be confined to editorial and op-ed pages. That no longer exists. This lack of objectivity and the decline of standards is one reason, though not the only one, why newspapers and news magazines are a declining industry. According to the Pew Research, print revenue from newspaper sales has declined from $47 billion in 2006 to $16 billion in 2014. Digital sales haven't come close to making up the difference, considering that most of them are a dollar or $3 a month. Most papers have been forced to cut operating expenses, slash staff, and close bureaus overseas in particular. Ironically, there are more stories than ever to cover and fewer staff than ever to cover them. This lack of information from professional journalists has been filled by a new source, social media and the blogosphere, sites like mine. When the Iraq War, which was covered ad nauseum in the New York Times, it began in 2003, there were roughly 100,000 bloggers. Only a few years later, there were an estimated 27 million. The internet 
as a news source has obvious pluses and minuses. On the plus side is that information is spread widely and instantly. The minuses have to do with the fact that the quality of the reporting varies dramatically because it is actually put through widely and instantly. It's not easy to separate the wheat from the chaff. Furthermore, many sites, including mainstream sites, have abandoned traditional journalistic practices and standards in search of more and more eyeballs. Objectivity, once the gold standard of reporting, is now often seen as old-fashioned, a ratings loser, when success is measured mainly in terms of clicks. The outrageous beats the sober just about every time. Inserting opinion. Even in the middle of a news story is a way in which journalists can distinguish themselves. How many times have you heard them say, listen, listen, this is my show. I ask the questions here. And in the mainstream media outlets, those opinions overwhelmingly tend to be liberal. This might not be so bad if journalists acknowledge their bias and were honest, but they almost never do, yet the bias is obvious. I always try to tell people clearly I'm a Republican. However, I have voted for both parties and will continue to do so based upon the merit of the person, not necessarily the party, but I predominantly vote Republican. It's okay to say that. But according to a 2014 study by two Indiana University professors, reporters who identify as Democrats outnumber those who identify as Republicans by 4 to 1, 28% to 7%. The remaining 65% call themselves independent, but based on long experience and research, This is fiction. That is, many reporters like to describe themselves as independent, but they're not. Not really. By any fair measure, this group is overwhelmingly on the political left, donate to the left, and fundraise for the left, and speak favorably of the left above all others. This obvious liberal bias has only served to push conservative readers to those sources that cater to conservative themes. This creates further polarizing that media landscape that we talked about. That's why on my show, I do mostly talk about Republican talking points from that perspective, but occasionally I will bat for the other team. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't do it all the time, and I never claim to do so. But unable to attract conservatives, the mainstream media has chosen to double down on views and themes that appeal to their liberal constituency to ensure that when we turn the channel that the commercials are synced up so nobody goes to the other side. Everything is curtailed to your viewpoints. To give just one example, when Fox News broke a story in January 2016 about the discovery of top-secret intel on the private email server that Hillary Clinton used while Secretary of the State, this classified information, which had denied ever having sent or received, she obviously did that, the New York Times buried this news story deeper inside the paper. A decline in reporting standards, a decline in revenue, and an increase in bias have made many wary of the people who provide them with their news. A certain amount of skepticism is a healthy thing, but a thriving democracy depends on a dynamic and free press. As much as people may like to bash the media, most people would far prefer to trust it. This is where you come in. You have the power. You have the understanding, the wherewithal, the ability to disseminate and process and question. Most of the time when I read something, I read at least 10 or 15 other articles from various sources. And yes, I have to stomach some things that I absolutely despise. I'll actually go to The Onion, surprisingly enough, which their take is closer to the truth than most sites. I'll go to parody sites. I will visit liberal, conservative, independent, fact-based sites, AP, down the middle, unbiased reporting that actually give you left, right, and center viewpoints. And I will come to my own conclusions based upon my own scruples, morals, and values. Does that mean we all have the time to do this? No. But I have a question. 
do we really not have the time to do this? Or is it simply that it's too difficult and it's easier to stay at our echo chambers? The question and the comment that I really have is, how can we afford not to do this? The party who cried wolf was charging a Trump business aid for tax evasion worth the permanent damage to the presidency. Really? Really this huge scandal? As they went after Manafort? As they went after some small day players? Was it really worth it during the Mueller investigation? Was General Flynn really what they were after? The big kahuna, the big fish? No. They were after Trump. And after reading the indictments handed down last week, the former president's supporters and critics should agree that the answer is no, it wasn't worth it. I mean, all the critics, even Democrats, should say this is just complete bullshit because ultimately President Biden may well suffer the harm too. And shouldn't that make you raise your eyes and go, not President Biden, the most popular president in Democratic history? Certainly not. Say it ain't so, Joe. After three years of criminal investigations into the business of the former president, the Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance persuaded a grand jury last week to indict Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. Prosecutors claim that Weisselberg and the company as a whole engaged in a scheme for the past 15 years to hide fringe benefits, an apartment, a car, school tuition, from tax authorities. Recall that ever since the criminal probe began, legions of commentators predicted that Vance would undoubtedly uncover fraud and wrongdoing by the president himself. Democrats in Congress buttressed Vance's attack. Uh, Betrest. Betrest? Oh, see, guys, this is what happens, is that betrest of a building or a structure strengthened or supported with betrest. And it's pronounced betrest. I was correct. See? Betrest Vance's attacks by demanding that Trump hand over his tax returns and other financial records. By the way, always learn. It's wonderful. Words are fantastic. My wife and I heard a word on West Wing, and I was like, I know what that means. I love the English language. I consider myself a little bit of a wordsmith, but I muck it up too. There are way too many words in the English language to be perfect. But listen, look it up. The dictionary is a great thing. Learn and expand your vocabulary. Anyway, I digress. Demanding that Trump hand over over his tax returns and other financial records, when Vance finally conveyed a special grand jury, the gleeful speculation that the former president might even end up in jail reached a fever pitch. So the last week's indictments, no matter good, bad, or indifferent, should leave Trump's critics with a sour taste in their mouth. Prosecutors found nothing with which to charge Trump, nothing at all. And instead, they are filing the type of tax charges that authorities who aren't as politically motivated as New York's handle by requiring back taxes and financial penalties. It's simply a slap on the wrist. And Weisselberg can certainly afford it. Weisselberg has pleaded not guilty, and it is not unheard of for companies to provide such fringe benefits to their top executives. Weisselberg's attorneys say he made an honest mistake. He kept a tally of the payments in the company's financial records after all. After all the litigation, millions spent on the investigations and attacks from within Congress and the media we're left only with charges about the proper reporting of, of improper reporting of the income over a 15-year period. It's as if Vance had gone off on an errand into the wilderness with a hunting party and came back with a few prairie dogs. What went unmentioned in most of the reports on the indictments is the harm to the presidency. And this hunt certainly was the cause of it. Soon forgotten was the fact that Vance had taken his quest for the Trump's organization's financial records to the Supreme Court. Trump had gone to federal court to stop his accounting firm, Mazars USA, from cooperating with the Manhattan DA's investigation. 
Unfortunately, Trump made the broad claim that the president enjoyed absolute immunity from state criminal investigation, and so courts had to squash Vance's subpoenas to his company and its accounting firm. This was an uphill climb due to the Supreme Court's 1997 Clinton v. Jones decision, which held that President Bill Clinton could not claim immunity from Paula Jones' lawsuit alleging sexual harassment under federal civil rights laws. But opponents of President Trump used litigation to an unprecedented degree to attack him and to delay the advancement of his agenda. This also proves that Trump bars his taxes from being seen and blocks things constantly and countersues people, maybe not because he's guilty, but because he doesn't tolerate a bunch of BS. He doesn't stand for it. He has the money to hire lawyers for everything. And honestly, he should, because everybody wants a piece. In July 2020, the court dismissed Trump's defense of the presidency. The president is neither absolutely immune from state criminal subpoenas seeking his private papers, nor entitled to a heightened standard of need. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for a 7-2 majority in Trump versus Vance. The court cautioned only that, in order to preserve both the independence of the executives and the integrity of the criminal justice system, the trial judge should manage compliance with a subpoena according to traditional legal and constitutional principles. Small solace that, as Mazars and the Trump Organization soon produced, the documents that led to last week's indictments. The Supreme Court's blessing of this attack on Trump's undercuts the energy in the executive so sought by founders Vance's criminal investigation into sitting president by a state prosecutor was unprecedented. It creates the obvious risk, as here, that an official elected by an opposition party might use his or her prosecutorial powers to harass and embarrass the president. As Justice Samuel Alito observed in dissent in Trump versus Vance, our nation has more than 2,300 local prosecutors, many of them elected. The Supreme Court's opinion now allows any of them to bring a criminal investigation into a sitting president. In their obsession to bring down Trump by any means necessary, his critics have made the presidency vulnerable to state criminal prosecution, brought for partisan purposes. And think of the future possibilities for political theater. If a state DA can subpoena presidents, he theoretically can arrest and fingerprint them, bring them before a court or for arraignment, detain them until posting bail, and even place travel restrictions on them. Wouldn't that be racist? Oh, no, it's only xenophobic or Islamophobic or homophobic. I don't know which one. He could even conduct a trial where the president would have to appear for all proceedings for weeks. Can you imagine how long that would be? Four years of his first term would be in litigation. He would never get anything done. Or she. A Republican DA not only could charge Hunter Biden for his sleazy business dealings, he could investigate President Biden himself as a co-conspirator. It is not just the president who would suffer, but the American people. I'm not saying overlook this. I'm not saying that the president should not be held accountable. I'm saying, are we really truly holding him accountable, or is this political theater for 2024? As Justice Thomas wrote in his dissent in Trump versus Vance, the president has vast responsibilities both abroad and at home, such as protecting the national security, conducting foreign policy, and executing federal law in order to give the nation the benefit of energy in the executive. The founders made the conscious choice to vest these many responsibilities in a single individual who could act with decision, activity, secrecy, and dispatch, as Alexander Hamilton argued in Federalist Papers number 70. The investigation will consume the time, energies, and resources that the president should devote to carrying out his constitutional and political duties and advancing the agenda upon which the American people elected him. 
As Thomas Jefferson had argued when served with a subpoena in the Aaron Burr treason trial, the president's duties as chief magistrate demand his whole time for national objects, rather than racing from one end of the nation to the other to defend himself in court. Even if the president were not immune from state criminal investigation, the Supreme Court should have required, as Justices Thomas and Alito urged, that state proceedings wait on and hold on Trump and made sure that he had finished his term in office. But in the chaotic summer of 2020, the Supreme Court would not take the constitutionally courageous steps of suspending an investigation into Donald Trump's financial shenanigans. Instead, it made the president vulnerable to partisan investigators that only can damage the incumbent politically, but also interfere with the execution of his high office on behalf of the American people. In exchange, all that the critics of Donald Trump won is the indictment of Alan Weisselberg for 15 years of tax cheating, not the vast criminal conspiracy promised by Vance and other New York officials. In this case, as in others, Trump's critics chopped down another tree in the forest of laws and legal norms to pursue their devil, but to the harm of the future presidents and the American people. If you're only as good as your word, what does that make you? We've all heard it said thousands of times in our lives. You're only as good as your word. But what does you're only as good as your word really mean? It sounds simple. Is it? We're born into this world and brought up in a society that expects people to be true to the promises they make. In the simplest term, we're taught to do what we say we are going to do. When I was younger, that idea seemed very important to me. It still does. Not keeping one's word can have very serious impacts. At the same time, however, I'm concerned that the commitment to keeping one's word has lost its importance in today's society, which has far-reaching implications, more vast than even I can eclipse. There's not much I can do about it, except tell you what my thoughts are, and here we go. Years ago, many agreements were made and kept with a single handshake, spitting in the hand and clasping hands together, and it was good enough. My word is my bond. People didn't have to worry about things going sideways after saying that they were going to do something. In today's world, some people will agree to a deal, but if something better comes along, they will do what they can to walk away from their prior commitment. Back in the day, you were expected to begin any workday at 9 a.m. That meant you were ready to go and start to do at 9 a.m. at the latest, not 9.05, not 9.10, or not clock early to go ahead and skim a few minutes on the clock. Nowadays, it seems like most employees believe that a 9 a.m. start really means that they just need to get through the door of their work site by that time clock in, then put their clothes down, go to their locker, make a cup of coffee, and finally report at 9.22, and they think that that isn't theft. It is. I once told my bosses at Valor, you pay me this salary, and I will earn every nickel of that salary, and I will never come to you in that year and say I want more. No matter what I do, no matter what I'm rewarded, no matter how successful I am, I don't want more money. We can negotiate that after I help, after I get the company where it needs to go. And I truly believe that. I'm worth what they gave me for 365 days, and we will renegotiate after that. And if I don't get anything, it means I didn't do my job. And if I do get something, it means I earned it. That's your word. You give notice. You don't walk out. You don't quit. You don't look for grass greener on the other side because most often it's not. But likewise, In a prior era, if you set an appointment for a certain time, it was expected you would be on time. If you said you would do a job, you would do the job. I've always lived by this mantra. If you're on time, you're late. 
And when I was in school or I was in the military, I would be the first one at practices and the last one to leave. But the problem is, is when I talk about school and military, that was after the high school. I didn't always hold up to these values. I missed so many days of school and I didn't necessarily believe it. But once I joined the military, I learned being on time is extremely important. And that small behavior led to more behaviors, which inevitably creates a value inside of me that keeping my word is absolutely important. It used to be that husbands and fathers would tell their wives and children when they would be home, and lo and behold, they were. In today's world, that doesn't happen often. We are expected to work harder and longer hours. We're expected to stay at the job until the last task of the day is completed. In businesses like my own, it's tough to commit to a time when the day ends because from day to day, you don't know what will come to pass. I do work sometimes until 10 or 11 at night. I'm up at 4 a.m. answering emails because I enjoy what I do, not necessarily because I have to. And when I need to disconnect and take a break, I can certainly ask for it because I've earned it. I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were chatting about what your word means and the difference between keeping your word and honoring your word. Why does the distinction matter? I think it's because these days many variables act as obstacles to our ability to keep our word. Keeping your word is about doing what you say you're going to do. If that means being at a specific place at a specific time, you show up. But we know that's not always possible. Life gets in the way. Traffic backs up. A child has an unexpected accident. A deal falls apart because of circumstances beyond your control. So how do you honor your word in these situations when you know despite all best intention and effort, you're not going to be able to carry through with what you say you're going to do? Well, barring the idea that you're just you're flaky and you're backing out on what you say you're going to do and just giving up entirely, the best way to honor your word is through transparency and disclosure. If you see yourself running late to an appointment, the best way to honor your word if you're not going to be on time is to make a phone call and let the person know your delay and expected time of arrival and to make sure that the new set of circumstances matches their availability. If you're going to have to miss an appointment, the best way to be honorable with your words is to provide as much advance notice of the change in the schedule and to provide options that are amenable to the person who is being inconvenienced by your cancellation. If I'm running late, for example, at the very least, I'll pick up my phone and make a call to let the relevant parties know that I realize I'm not keeping that appointment that I committed to, but that I'm working on it. People appreciate it when others take the time to show a little common courtesy. There are times I get emails unsolicited. I will not reply to them for the life of me because it's unsolicited. Somebody I don't know will reach out and I will say nothing because I'm not going to make a commitment. Sometimes you have to not make a commitment. Sometimes making and keeping your word is not giving it because you know ultimately you're not going to follow through. People do that all the time to avoid confrontation and placate. That's just as bad as giving your word and breaking it. Many of us are too shy or too prideful about admitting they are not going to keep their word. And consequently, let another person down by denying the circumstances until it's too late to make a change without inflicting consequences. But why does it matter? Not honoring one's word could be disastrous and costly. If I don't try to honor my word with my clients or my customers or my employees, I could be seen as inconsiderate and unprofessional. It might appear that I don't care about other people's time. People may get away with this once or twice, but this kind of consistent behavior would lead one to get fired from a job or by a client. And in real estate or construction or electronics, if they behave dishonorably toward a potential listing customer or a potential client or a retail purchase, you could lose the opportunity to work with that client or customer, or I could be fired from a, from a listing 
or a transaction or a contract simply because I broke my word. If I were dishonorable toward a buyer lead that could be another purchase out the door, or I had a $30,000 contract that I failed to show up for the signing, getting fired means a loss of income. But worse, if word got out, and it would, your reputation would be tarnished, costing more than just money in the future. It's not just about a computer. It's not about a contract. It's not about a house. It's not about a material item. It's about that you stopped the mission. You were the weakest link in that mission. And your failures impacted your peers and your company and the word you gave to do your job. Failing to honor one's word can damage relationships. When people rely on you, whether in business or personally, the idea of not honoring your word will lose you respect and trust and face. I try to talk about the idea of owning a mistake. In fact, not so long ago, I made a costly mistake on behalf of one of my customers. But the idea of not owning a mistake made me sick to my stomach. I called the customer and asked if I could come to their house and talk. I did this unbeknownst to my bosses. I sat in their kitchen and explained to them how I had made a mistake, that I had not trained one of my associates properly and set the most reasonable expectation. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't ask for a handout. I just explained that I would honor my word and take ownership of the error. I went to my bosses. I simply said, this is what's going on and we need to take care of it. After I had finished meeting with them and the transaction had closed, The customer told several people about what had happened and what I had done to take ownership of my error. A nice email was sent in and further clients came and purchased with us. Not only did I solidify my relationship with them, I'm also more confident about my business and what will come out of it simply because I had honored my word and stood up and owned it. Keeping your word is always preferred to other options, but if you're running late or behind schedule or otherwise can't live up to what you said you're going to do, being transparent and disclosing the appropriate information will allow you to honor your word. and That will carry a lot of weight when it comes time to earn or keep someone's trust. Folks, that's it for tonight. That is 185. Thank you so much for spending the night with me. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. It is Friday. I hope everyone is safe and has a wonderful evening. I know I'm going to have a good weekend. I'm tired. I need a little bit of rest. Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1. 22 veterans a day commit suicide is way too many. They need your help. They need your guidance. They need your ear. Please reach out to a vet. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, depression, anxiety are all very real. Please, if you can't talk to a vet, if you just don't have the lingo, reach out to me. I will help you with that call. And if not, you can give them my site, donutfriendly.com. They'll click on the VCL link and be connected via Skype or phone or through their computer free of charge. If you are a citizen, a civilian, you can do the same thing. They will never turn anyone away, and they will make sure you find the proper channels to get the help that you need. Folks, thanks so much for being a part of the team here on Don't Unfriend Me. Thanks for being a dummy and not a dum-dum. You can actually like, follow, share, and subscribe right here. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless, and I will see you back on Monday. Good night.